0: Our text is found in the book of Titus. The book of Titus, we'll be looking at Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Let me read the text for us. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the returning and the appearing of the glory of our great God and savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Let's pray. Well, Father, Father, I thank you for the gift of song and music. And Father, I thank you for the very songs that we sing today, God, that so correspond with the the word that we're going to see today, God, that... That we need grace, Father, and it's the grace that you provide, that it's by your Spirit that we can live lives that are pleasing to you. Father, I pray that um, through the worship of song, God, that our hearts are prepared to do just that, Father, to prepare ourselves to live lives that are honoring to you, to live lives that are fitting of your glorious gospel. Father, it it takes grace for us to do these things. And Father, so we look to you, the giver of grace. Father, we look to you and, and beg of you as your children, God, that you would give us the ability to do the things that we want to do, that we often do not do. Father, I pray that our lives, the lives of every believer in this church, God, would glorify you. Father, I pray that you would use your word today, God, to sanctify us, God, to help us in this task of becoming more Christ-like. Father, open up your word to us, God. Reveal yourself to us, Father, not only in word, but in spirit, Father. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Well, we're still few in number but that's okay. Count yourself blessed. Count yourself blessed that you're not um, on your back, um, in the bed, in pain, but instead you're here in the, in the church of God with Bibles wide open, in the air conditioning, uh, getting ready to hear God's word. Count yourself blessed indeed. Uh, our text here is found in the book of Titus. This letter uh, that the Apostle Paul wrote to Titus is commonly grouped together with the other books, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. These books are often considered collectively known as the pastoral epistles. These letters were written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy and to Titus, in which Paul was, what he was doing was he was passing on his pastoral wisdom to these men. Both Timothy and Titus had become elders in some of the churches that the Apostle Paul founded in in his vast missionary endeavors. And so these men were in great need of instruction on how God wished for them to conduct themselves in the household of God. To Titus, Paul wrote this very short and succinct letter that we have here today. It's only three chapters long. This letter deals mainly with Uh, the setting up of a comparison. The Apostle Paul is comparing those who are ungodly, those who are deceived, those who are false teachers, and he's comparing those against those who have in fact been born again and who in fact have the Spirit of God and who are being taught by God to live holy lives. And so from God's perspective, these are the only two options that there are. There are those who are the sons of God, and there are those who are the sons of the devil. There are those who are led by the Spirit of God, and there are those who are still led by the Spirit of this age. There are those who have been given a new heart, and there are those who are still being hardened to the truth. Because, brothers and sisters, there's no in-between almost Christians. You will either spend eternity with Christ, enjoying his glory, his protection, his favor, or you will spend an, uh, an eternity in hell experiencing the wrath of God against all of your rebellion against him. And so this, this is why it's so important to do just what we did last week. Just as the Apostle Paul told the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 13 5, he said to test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Our text today is found right in the middle of this comparison that the Apostle Paul's been making between the godly and the ungodly. And so I thought we'd just take a moment here uh, before we got into our text to, to note the context of our passage, to see this comparison Paul's been drawing. You might have to turn back a page. Turn to Titus 115. Titus 1, 15 and 16 is Paul's description of the ungodly. He says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. And so Paul's description here of the non-Christian is really twofold. First, he says their minds are defiled. The unbeliever cannot think rightly concerning God. He cannot think rightly concerning his truth or his word. The ungodly pervert the truth of God. Second, they, they even profess with their mouths to know God. But Paul says, but by their deeds, meaning by their actions, they deny him meaning that their lives don't match up to their profession. You see, real and true Christianity has a a proper perspective of God, an actual understanding of His truth, which then leads to a corresponding, proper, godly behavior. Look in Titus 2.1 now. Paul says, but, making a comparison here between going from the ungodly to the godly, he says, but as for you, speaking to Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And it's with this Paul uh, begins his description of the godly with this command for Titus to speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. True godly living begins here with sound doctrine. If your deeds are not based on sound doctrine, then they will not be pleasing to God. There were many who were motivated uh, in their deeds, in their works, in their so-called evangelism. They're motivated on the the basis of a works-righteous system of pleasing God. They think by their deeds, they will in fact earn God's favor. But friends, the Bible's clear that if you think that way, if that is your motivation for service to God, that you will in fact be turned away from Christ on that day. If you do what you do based on just a very worldly moralism of you just trying to be good enough or be better than someone else, then you have yet to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And likewise, which is what our text here is getting at, if you think you've understood the gospel, you think that you've submitted to it, but yet you see no change in your life, then you have been deceived and you are deceiving yourself. And Christ is yet to become Lord of your life. And we're going to see why this is true in our text today. From here, Paul goes on in verses 2 through 9 to describe these things that are fitting for sound doctrine. Here the Apostle Paul lists some of the characteristics that are present in the lives of all different types of Christians. Maybe you can look for your your spot in this listing here. Verses two through nine, Paul explains how older men are to be dignified and sound in faith. Older women are to be reverent and teachers of the younger women. The younger women are to be lovers of their family and submissive to their husbands. Young men are to be pure in deed, in doctrine, and in speech. And slaves are to be subject to their masters. And so the question is, as we look at this list of all these characteristics of the godly, the question for us today to address in our text is, how is it possible for us to live these types of lives that adorn our Lord and Savior? How is it possible to live lives like this because godliness is difficult godliness is taxing it's very much easier to just go with the flow of the world to just kick back and relax and just hope that you're going to be flown into heaven on a red carpet but as we said true godliness begins with sound doctrine And the Apostle Paul never commands a holy standard of living without first basing it primarily and foundationally on what God has done, on what God has done. And so that's where we'll begin. And for those seeking, for any of those here wanting a reminder and an encouragement concerning what God has done for us so that you can, in fact, live a holy life that's pleasing to God, here we pick up in verse 11 where Paul gives us the answer. Verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Grace. That's what we need. That's what we're all looking for. And grace it must be. Because any time it comes to God dealing favorable, favorably with us and having positive relations with us who are fallen and sinful creatures... Grace must always be the conduit. Grace most simply defined is God's unmerited favor. It's a kindness which God bestows on us who not only don't deserve it, but in fact deserve just the opposite. We all deserve God's wrath. But thank God, he has chosen to be gracious. It's a necessity That grace be the starting point, because apart from grace, we're just as the Bible describes us. We're enemies of God. We're haters of God. We're suppressors of God's truth. Now, our text here, this grace which Paul speaks of, Paul's not just simply speaking of a very general concept of grace. But Paul says here, there's been an actual appearing of this grace, This appearing of God's grace is a reference to the fact that God's grace was fully revealed at a particular point in time. God's grace was revealed in history, and that we just celebrated last month at Christmas. This grace of God that resulted in the act of his saving a people was accomplished in the coming of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, and that's what Paul's talking about. All of God's saving and sanctifying grace comes through the substitutionary life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God. Now what we also need to address here, and what many of you are probably wondering about, is what do we do and what does Paul mean here when he says that this coming of Christ that's brought salvation and grace to all men? What do we do with that? Is Paul saying here that God is in fact saving every single human being who ever lived? Well, that can't possibly be what the Apostle Paul means because the Bible's replete with examples of people who will in fact not be saved and people who will spend an eternity under God's judgment. Does it then mean that through the coming of Jesus Christ that every single person alive will have this gracious offer of salvation given to them? Well, that can't be what it means either. Because, brothers and sisters, I don't know if you realize this or not, but even today, even right now, there are people, countless numbers of people who are born, who live, who sin, and who die, who never hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That happens every day. That's why missions still exist. That's why Pastor Emilio and them are down there in Mexico, because there are those who have still yet to have heard this gospel so, what does Paul mean by saying the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men? Well, due to the context of this declaration of Paul, I believe that what Paul is saying is that this gracious salvation that was earned by Jesus Christ is now being given to all men without distinction. All men without distinction, whether old or young, male or female, free or slave, this grace is saving people of every kind without distinction. It's important to realize that you have to remember what was the greatest distinction of human history, the greatest distinction and dividing line between God's salvation prior to the ministry of Jesus Christ. What was that dividing line? It was the Jew and Gentile distinction. Up until the time of Christ, and apart from very few exceptions, which were what I think really just glimpses into what God would do through Christ. God had only revealed himself salvifically to the people of Israel. It was just as the psalmist says in Psalm 147, 19, the psalmist says, he, speaking of God, declares his words to Jacob, his statues and his ordinances to Israel, and he has not dealt thus with any other nation. And as for his ordinances, They have not known them, praise the Lord. Even during Jesus' own ministry, when he sent out his disciples to preach in other cities, he told them, Matthew chapter 10, he said, Do not go the way of the Gentiles, nor do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The Apostle Paul reminds us also, reminds us Gentiles, specifically speaking right to us, of this reality in Ephesians chapter 2. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2 to see this. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. This is an important reminder for us. Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 11, says, Therefore remember that you, the Gentiles in the flesh, Who were called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision which is performed in the flesh by the hands speaking of the Jews remember that you were at that time separate from Christ excluded from the Commonwealth of Israel strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world that was our condition as Gentiles before the coming of Christ, without God and without hope in the world. But thank God, following Jesus' resurrection, following all things having been fulfilled, that Jesus gave this command to his disciples in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Jesus told his disciples at this point, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And so it was with this command throughout the book of acts, as we've been seeing in Sunday school, that we see God saving men without distinction, men, women, free slave, Jew, Gentile without distinction. Salvation has, in fact, gone out to the whole world. Now, the other reason that we know that this salvation, which is brought to all men, does not mean every single individual, because if it did mean every single individual, every single individual would, in fact, be saved. And this is because this grace of God, this salvation spoken of here by Paul, is an effectual grace. It's a grace that actually does something, This is not some kind of a potential grace, a prevenient grace. This is a powerful grace that actually conforms us to the image of Christ. Look now at verse 12 back in Titus chapter two. Look at verse 12 and we'll see what this effectual saving grace does in the life of a believer. This grace is instructing us to deny ungodliness, and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Here in verse 12, Paul lists for us both the positive aspects of of the Spirit's instruction and the negative aspects of God's grace. God's grace instructs us, it teaches us, it guides us to deny ungodliness, This ungodliness that grace teaches us to deny is is this word is also found in that all so ominous text, Romans 1.18. Where there it says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Ungodliness is just a very general term describing everything that is unlike God. In Romans 1.18, Paul's using that in the context of idolatry and sexual sin. Paul more specifically then says that God's grace also teaches us to reject worldly desires. We can see this same word being used right here in Titus chapter 3, verse 3. Here, Titus, here Paul uses it in the context of other sinful things, a list of other things that we used to be given over to before the Spirit of God turned us around. Look in Titus 3, 3, it says, For we also were foolish ourselves, disobedient, Deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. There's our word. Here it's translated pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. So these terms, ungodliness, and worldly passions, they just encompass a multitude of different sinful behaviors. But the point that Paul is getting to here is he's trying to show us this, that God's grace actually teaches you, it actually instructs you, it directs you to say no to these things. The grace of God grants you the repentance, grants you the ability to start putting off the sins that you have always given yourself into prior to coming to Christ. This is the grace of God that we're talking about here, this, the Spirit teaching you to deny, to reject, and in a sense to just say no to the flesh. I don't know if any of you are old enough or young enough to remember the campaign slogan that I always heard growing up in school. I don't know if you remember McGruff, the crime fighting dog. You know, McGruff taught us to just say no to drugs. You know, but there was no effectual grace in that command, I can assure you. It was not effectual in my life. But thank God that the instruction of God's Spirit was effectual and powerful and accomplished its purpose in my life. Effectual grace. This effectual work of God's grace is why Jesus could say, you will know them by their fruit. It's because God's salvation actually changes people. If there's no change, there's no salvation. Well, God's grace here does not only Teaches us to put off sin, but it also teaches us to put on godliness. Notice the rest of verse 12 here. Paul says God's grace has been instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And so this aspect of the Christian living sensibly that Paul mentions here, Paul's describing how the Christian is to live a self-controlled. A moderate a sober life these are things fitting for sound doctrine Paul says here that we're also being taught to live righteously and godly these are just the characteristics that we saw in verses 2 through 9 all of these things that are fitting for sound doctrine all of these things that Titus is to be teaching his church on how the different types of Christians are to live the spirit teaches us to be righteous and godly in doctrine And indeed, so that's Paul's point here in verse 12 is to show us how grace, how how God's grace does not simply justify the sinner, but it also sanctifies the sinner. All of this growth, all of this sanctification that's being talked about by the grace of God is taking place in our lives during this present age, which presupposes that there is another age to come another age that will be inaugurated by the event here of verse 13 so going on as we're living righteously as we're living godly we're to be verse 13 looking we're to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus so as we noted from the start godly living begins with sound doctrine correct doctrine correct thinking and brothers and sisters this thought this reality of the return of christ is one of the most sanctifying thoughts most sanctifying doctrines that god gives us for the non-christian who's remaining unrepentant in his sin this reality the reality of jesus christ coming back brings nothing more than the sure and terrifying expectation of judgment. But to us, to us, the return of Christ is just as Paul says, it's a blessed hope. A blessed hope. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're speaking on this, this comparison between how and what the consequences and results of the return of Christ will be for the ungodly versus the godly. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 6 through 10. Here we see the apostle Paul describe the difference in the effects of the return of Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 6 says, for after all it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. But not so with us, brothers and sisters. Verse 10 says, Because when he comes, he will be glorified in his saints on that day and will be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. At the coming of Jesus Christ, at this second appearing of Jesus Christ, judgment will likewise come. And in so, all wrongs will be made right, Every single tear will be wiped away. This will be the day when finally our struggle with sin in the flesh will finally be over and we'll be ushered into the very presence of God, never to be removed again. The return of Jesus Christ and the glories therein should literally be a sufficient thought to carry us through any trial, any problem, any struggle that we come against. So, brothers and sisters, put your hope in that day. Put your trust in the promise of Jesus Christ's return and think about this moment often. Do some of you struggle with this reality? Have, you, have any of you succumbed to the very worldly thinking that Peter describes in 2 Peter chapter 3, where some are saying, where is the promise of his coming Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from creation. How confident can you be in the second coming? Well, first of all, God said it's going to happen, so it will. But likewise, consider the fact that just as God promised the first coming of Jesus, and so in fact was faithful to send him, so he will be just as faithful to send him again. Look to the first coming of Jesus Christ. Just as surely as God promised from Genesis 3 and onward that the seed of a woman was gonna be born, this child of Abraham was gonna come, the son of a virgin, this redeemer who would bear our iniquity, just as surely as God did this, just as surely as that happened, just as surely as Jesus came the first time and fulfilled all these things, so he will come again, and he will rescue us from this world And bring with him a great and eternal rewards, which he will graciously bestow on us for our faithfulness. Let the certain return of Christ lead you to grow in your godliness. Now, did you also notice here in verse 13, did you notice the way that the Apostle Paul here speaks of Jesus Christ? He refers to Jesus Christ here as our great God and Savior our great God and Savior. So here we have one of many in the Bible explicit references to the deity of Jesus Christ. It's very interesting because in times past, many have mistranslated this section of Scripture. Many have made it sound as if the God and Savior who are to come are actually two distinct persons rather than one. Listen to how the King James Version renders this text and see if you hear it. The King James version said, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. King James version seems to make it sound as if the great God and our Savior are both coming. It really wasn't until a man by the name of Granville Sharp in 1798 wrote a paper, wrote a work on Greek grammar, which proved without exception, that every time in the New Testament, this Greek construction that we find here in Titus 2.13 is used, without exception, it always refers to the same person, to one person in particular. Anytime there's an article followed by two personal nouns, here we have God and savior, and every time those two personal nouns have the word chi, the word and in English in between them, Every time and without exception in the New Testament, those two personal nouns always refer to the exact same person in our text as Jesus Christ. Here, the Apostle Paul is declaring that Jesus Christ is our great God and Savior. It's amazing. And so you may think, well, you know, poor, poor reformers with the King James Version. Um, would they have been led astray from the deity of Christ and, and missed The deity of christ due to the the really not as helpful translation of this section of this one verse well not at all because they would have most certainly have seen the deity of christ in other aspects of this very same letter to titus because notice look at verse 13 again even in the king james version jesus is the savior jesus is called the savior now who does paul say is the savior if you flip over in chapter one verse three Look at the end of chapter 1, verse 3. Who's our Savior there? Well, God is our Savior. Titus 2.10. Who is the Savior there? God is our Savior. And so it's no surprise, it's not strange to find in 2.13 that Jesus Christ is our Savior. And so here the Apostle Paul is not confusing the persons of the Trinity in any way. What he's simply doing is, Unashamedly, he's affirming both the deity of the Father and the Son. Jesus Christ is the Son of God who is Himself God. And He will return one day without notice. And He will judge the wicked and cast them from His presence. But He will also take us to Himself, all of us who He has saved and sanctified by His grace. And so, Each and every one of us are to be ready for that day. We're to be anxious for that day. We're to be desiring for that day to come. We're to be looking for that day. Now, Paul, having said so much about the grace of God and this sanctifying effect that it has on the believer and how we're to be waiting for the appearing of Jesus Christ, he now goes on here in verse 14 here to describe the very particular act of Jesus Which made all of this grace happen he goes on from saying our great god and savior christ jesus verse 14 who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession zealous for good deeds it was the giving of himself on that cross for us that purchased us our redemption This was a substitutionary act of Jesus Christ to take on God's wrath and punishment for our sins. Christ hung there in our place. And in the mysterious economy of God, that death, that punishment that the son of God, the God man took actually purchased our souls for God. He actually, as Hebrew says, he actually obtained eternal redemption. The word Paul here uses for this redemption is lutrao. It means uh, to purchase. The word at this time uh, that it was written by Paul was, was used of the act of one who would pay the purchase price to free a slave from slavery. To free a slave from his captivity and his owner. The same word was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to refer to the deliverance, to that exodus, that redemption of God's people that God provided for the Israelites out of the slavery in Egypt. Same word, redemption, the deliverance. And so how was Paul using this word? How does this word carry over here in our reference to Jesus' death for us? Well, Paul tells us, he says, he gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed our redemption wasn't so much from wicked slave masters or egypt our redemption was from our lawless deeds from our sin and just how many of those sins did jesus christ die for well here it says every last one of them that's a precious truth in itself is it not every single sin you ever committed past present and future was satisfied by the death of christ if that doesn't make you desire to be holy and to lay down your life for your savior i don't know what else will but lastly let's notice again here that paul is not letting titus forget that the death of christ which was the means by which we receive all this grace of God, is not just an act which brings justification. It's not just an act which forgives our sins, but again, it's also an act which was intended to do much more. He goes on in verse 14, he says, "...who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people, a people for his own possession who is zealous for good deeds." The grace of Christ was specifically intended to purify a people, to purify a people for his own possession, a people who were zealous for good deeds. And so the question is, is the grace of God purifying you? Is the grace of God doing that work in your life? Are you growing? Are you being sanctified? Well, God does this purification in many ways. He does it, for one, through the graces of the church, through the preaching and teaching of his word. The more you hear the preaching and teaching of his word, the more your thoughts and, therefore, your actions are brought into alignment with God's. God also does this through pastors and other loving brethren who will come alongside you in your walk with the Lord. And as so many in our church who are even right now experiencing God also uses trials to purify and to clean, to cleanse us. God uses these trials. He brings them into our lives so that we will learn to be faithful. God wants to teach us to fully rely on him and to trust him and to trust his goodness through sickness, through separation, through loss, through poverty and through pain. God's doing this because he loves us. He wants us to be purified. It's just as you men want your brides to be holy, to be sanctified, so too does Christ want us, his bride, to be cleansed, to be washed, to be holy. God has taken to himself a people that will glorify him in this world, in this present age, of people who will prove to the world that God's grace is real, that God's grace is powerful and effective. You know, if all the previous benefits of God's salvation that we've just looked at his grace, his sacrifice, his returning, if all of these have yet to stir you up to pursue your sanctification, then let the honor of God's great name, in this world motivate you to change for the sake of his name change because i want our church to show this world how powerful god's spirit is i want our acts to match our profession we're very bold to go preach in the in the streets but would people believe that preaching if they saw us at work if they saw the way we we deal with our neighbors, if they they saw the way that we deal with each other. All of these things leave the the option for people to blaspheme the name of God when so-called Christians don't live like Christians. We're only giving an excuse to the unbelieving to remain in their unbelief. I say we take every excuse away from them. Let's show them that it's us to them that God's grace and His gospel is actually powerful enough to change people's lives so that on that day of His visitation, as Peter says, those who have observed our good deeds will have to glorify God at His coming. They will have to give honor and glory to God for what they've witnessed with their own eyes. You know, there's not all of us here But if there are any who are here and who have yet to experience this grace, this grace that Paul preaches, this grace that actually changes and sanctifies, if there's any who have yet to experience this grace, that gospel offer is still there for you. If you will repent and put all of your faith in Jesus Christ, you have the same promise of the reception of God's Holy Spirit. Everyone seems to be seeking a righteousness, whether they know how to get it or not. But if you seek righteousness, there's only one way to get righteousness. You get righteousness through trusting in Christ. You actually get his righteousness and a sanctifying righteousness where you will actually become more righteous. If you want to be more righteous as you've been trying and you have yet to come to Christ, you're really just spinning your wheels. And so the call is there for any who have yet to repent and put their trust in Christ. And for us who have been saved already, brothers and sisters, let us continue to work out our salvation, knowing that it's God in us who's working in us to will and to do for his good pleasure. Amen? Let's pray. Well, Father... God, would you please make this text effectual, Father, these realities effectual in our lives. Father, may we be sanctified, God. For the sake of your holy name in this earth, God, may we be holy. Father, may my actions match my words, Father. May those at my workplace, God, be shamed father by the the holiness of my life may you use this father to stir them up father to seek your name and to seek the God who does these wondrous things God father may you work these things in our marriages father may our marriages be so blessed father that our family members see our marriages in wonder father May people actually come to us, Father. Maybe we be so holy, God, that people actually ask us for the hope that is within us. Father, if we were just like the world, Father, if we remain like the world, nobody's going to wonder anything about us. But, Father, give us the, the grace to be sanctified, to become like Christ. Father, give us mercy and grace. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.